We're reading from Acts 28, verses 1 through 10. It's on page, I believe it's 937 of your pew Bible. Here now the reading of God's Word. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time of singing. The encouragement that we gain from putting the truth of your word to song. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity that we have had to praise you. To confess our sin. And now to open your word. Father, we thank you that this morning we are not left with the question of where we might find the truth. You've not given us the, the meandering, the wondering that so many people have as to where to find hope. And where to find truth in religion. Father, you've given us your word. You've given us your son. You've given us your Holy Spirit. And we submit ourselves now to your word and ask that you would teach us. And that you would change us. And that your spirit would infuse the preaching of your word. For your glory and your glory alone. In the precious and holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we have been working our way through the book of Acts, and we started in what I would say is fairly small sections, and then as uh, the book picked up and the, the narrative got larger or the speeches got longer, we took bigger sections, and it would seem as if uh, we're near to the end, just a few verses away from the end of our time in Acts. I haven't looked in some time as to how long we've been in this book, but it's been a while, and it would seem that we are getting close enough that let's just finish this off. And that's a little bit what I thought about doing, uh, which is why I took us through 16. It seemed like a clear place to break the passage. 
And then as I was opening it and studying the word this week, it became clear, no, we need to slow down. And so we will slow down a little bit. We'll be in this, book, this particular chapter for at least three, if not four, more sermons. Well, last week and the previous week, Paul was on a boat in an ocean, on the sea, uh, storm-tossed, uh, seemingly no hope of finding his way to some safe place where he and those on board with him might be saved, and yet being assured by God that he would be saved, we saw them last week crash land, if you will, upon the island of Malta. We didn't know it was Malta last week. We do know it by way of verse 1 of our text this week. We're on the island of Malta. And lest we think that, yes, we have reached some safe place and all adventure is now over, the high seas are behind us and land is underneath us, not so. Because they did crash land in the middle of a storm. And as we see in our text, rain is still pouring down, it is cold, and they've landed on an island of which they cannot speak the language. And we're left with what might God do as Paul is still seeking to get to Rome. You probably heard the quote before, you can't steer a ship unless it's moving. And I think in some ways that quote from whomever it came applies to our, our text and our study of the, of, of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul is a man possessed with getting the gospel, particularly in this passage to Rome. But if we glance back over the many chapters we've been through, it really doesn't matter to whom and where he must go. He wants to see Christ preached, and that's it. Nothing else and no more. His desire is entirely to get to Rome. Unlike, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Jonah, who did not want to go where God had called him, Paul is firmly intent to go where God wants him to go, and that's Rome. And yet, you can't steer a ship unless it's moving. He moves in obedience to where God has him, and God sovereignly places him on a ship that lands him in Malta. I don't think there's any question about it. God wants the gospel to get to Malta. We could go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, which is further on in Scripture, but Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, Malta counts. And the gospel is landing, if you will, crash landing on the island of Malta. Though, in almost a turn of of question, if not wonder and a bit of sadness maybe, we don't see the gospel do its effect, work its effect on the island of Malta. Let's look at our text. I've divided this passage. There's 10 verses we're looking at this morning. It's split them almost down the middle. You've got one through six. We've got a campfire on the beach. And then we'll look at seven through the remaining of the chapter, a healing and some help. If we're looking at 1 through 6, we see this. We see what takes place. They were brought safely through. We looked at this last week. It's a bit of an understatement by the writer Luke, though inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, they were brought safely through. Not by much, though. No ship left. Nothing left on the ship. Uh, if you could swim, you made it. If you couldn't, you, you had whatever was left of the ship to get to shore. 
And you can, you can get the picture, if you will, verse 37 of chapter 27, 276 persons and, and, and this storm that's still raging and the rain that's still pouring and the cold that's still happening as 276 people wash up on shore, you know, crawling up, soaked to the bone, mortified. Remember, they've only had one meal in 14 days. And the island islanders if you will in the midst of the storm looking out seeing this ship crash seeing people come and going oh there's one two there's ten there's a lot of people coming the native people what does that mean well these were non-greek speaking people they were the natives of that island some bibles Translated as the barbaric people, simply meaning these were not those who spoke Greek. This was another language. And they landed on Malta, which is a Phoenician word, and it's appropriate for their landing. It means refuge. The Lord had brought them safely here. And you would notice here that the kindness of these, these native people, of which we'll say more about in just a moment, but... They kindle a fire. They welcome them. It was raining and cold. And there we have what is often seen, if you've ever been, if you go camping, if you've, if you've never gone camping and it's not rained, come talk to me. I'd like to, I'd like to shake your hand. Because it happens. When you go, ra- when you go camping, it rains. And, and, and you know what it is to have a warm fire. And that's what it took in place here. We'll say more about verse 3 here in a moment. You see this viper comes out. You see what takes place. The native people, you can imagine it. A fairly large fire probably or multiple fires, 276 people. And they're all sort of watching. And Paul is just another one of the guys, reaches over, grabs some sticks, some wood, throw it on the fire. A snake comes out, latches onto his hand, and they all <gasps> watch. Paul shakes it off, it hisses, it does its thing, curls up, whatever. And then they all sit back and go, oh man, that's a bad dude. He must have done something wrong, which is why he's a prisoner of Rome. He must be a murderer. Therefore, yep, yep, told you. He really, it really is going to get him. The sea didn't get him, but, but we'll get him. They, they worship some, probably some sort of goddess that was in charge of exacting revenge upon bad people. And Paul must be a bad person, right? So they're, they're waiting. No doubt this man is a murderer. So they're waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down. And you've got to chuckle at verse 6. But when they'd waited a long time, what does that mean? How long do you have to wait? Think he's swelling? Nope, nope, nope. Ooh, his lips. Nope, he's just cold. That's what they're doing, right? Can you imagine these people just observing them, staring at Paul? What's going to happen? And after a while, they go, nope, he obviously isn't a murderer. Let's just call him a god. I mean, the flip-flop is quite stark. Now, chapter 14 of Acts Paul had been, a call, had been called a god there as well, and he refuted that because they were trying to worship him. We don't have in our text in, in this verse 6 that Paul says anything about it. 
It certainly could be implied from his answer in chapter 14 that he had no interest in being called a god or being claimed as some sort of deity. But they're not seeking to worship him and there isn't anything that we can note from our text that he does anything. But in this first section, I want you to notice five different things and I've just jotted them down by way of note and maybe you can as well if you're taking notes that would help us in terms of application and considering what seems to be a fairly straightforward section, which it is, but we can certainly learn something from these first six verses. Here's the first one. I want you to see the kindness of unsaved folks. The kindness of unsaved folk. Now, we see that up in verse 2. The native people showed us unusual kindness. We'll even see it over in verse 10. They also honored us greatly. These folks we don't have in our text. There seems to be no indication, certainly by the way that they treat Paul as a, potentially as a god. They don't know Jesus Christ. They don't know the one true God. And yet, they're incredibly kind. And as I stated last week, that is a kindness of God. It is a grace of God that he will allow us to go through life with those in our lives who do not know Jesus Christ. They have no interest in Jesus Christ, maybe. They certainly might believe there is some God, but they have put their faith in some other religion, and yet they are kind to us. Maybe even kind, kinder, if you will, than Christians in our time of need. And that's a kindness of God. And yet we should also note even for us by way of application as we consider what, what the Apostle Paul is doing, is that we should not allow ourselves as Christians with the truth of Jesus Christ to be blinded by their kindness. That somehow their kindness is good enough to therefore get themselves into right relationship with the Holy God. Now, I think we're tempted by that at times. Because if you've got a next door neighbor who is kind to you, the last thing you want is a next-door neighbor that is unkind to you. And if you go out on a limb and you say, have you ever considered Jesus Christ? Have you ever thought about your sin? Have you ever thought about holiness? Have you ever thought about hell or heaven or long-term? You might not have a kind neighbor anymore. But their kindness won't get them any farther to heaven than the murder down at the jail. Nice people go to hell as fast as evil people go to hell. And if we consider Paul as an example of evangelism, we must remember as well that God has called us to unkind people and kind people. They need Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you're thinking, well, I'm, I'm a really kind person, let me just warn you that kindness may be one of the greatest blinders to your need of Jesus Christ. I've known unbelievers that are far kinder than some of you people are. No offense. We all know it. But if you're here today and you look at your kindness as an attribute of which it is, but you do not have yourself in right relationship with God by the blood of Jesus Christ alone, that is, your sin has not been covered by Christ. That is, you're putting your trust in your kindness to get yourself in right relationship with God. Can I ask you how, kind you, how kind do you have to be? You have to be at least as kind as Jesus was. That's perfect. Second thing I want us to see 
if the first was the kindness of unsaved folks, the second, one, the second thing I want us to see is the, that public opinion is fickle. Public opinion is fickle. Notice they go from murderer, yep, he's got to be, to yep, he's got to be a god. And it, it shifts pretty rapidly. At least the fire doesn't go down too far. He's a murderer at one point. He's, he is a murderer at one point. We remember the Apostle Paul. Paul came from a, a hard background. He, he was standing and was complicit in the murder of Stephen. So yes, murder counts for Paul. He's not a God, but he's a child of the Almighty God. But public opinion is fickle. Brothers and sisters, fear of man is a waste of our time. We're preaching to the choir, and I'm preaching to myself on this. Fear of man is a waste of our time. Pursuing the approval of public opinion is wrong. Pursuing the approval of an almighty God is right. And if public opinion happens for a time to approve of you, that's all fine and good. And yet, you've got to know that tomorrow that may change. And I, I want to speci speak specifically to you young people, especially those who are of an age who, whether you're middle school or high school or college, there is a lot of pressure to conform, to be something you are not, to do something you shouldn't, to fit in, to have the approval of those around you. And if you don't, it's either said or implied strongly that you aren't worth all that much. And as a Christian, if you put your hope and approval by the public, which could be one person or hundreds of people, you're going to find yourself constantly having to shift, bounce and change in order to keep their approval. It's a devil's errand. We pursue the approval of only one, the Almighty God, through His Son Christ. And through His Son Christ, you have His approval and you need no other. If the love of Almighty God has been placed upon you in saving grace, what else do you need? I know what I think I need, which is I would desire the approval of you. And I have to repent of that. Public opinion is fickle. Number three, there's confusion here about the truth. Is what is actually going on with Paul is maybe the idea or the question in the, in the minds of these people on this island. Is he a deity? Is, is justice one of our goddesses exacting revenge upon him as a murderer? What's actually going on? Where is truth? And the world is as confused about truth in this section, in this passage of Acts, as it is today, if not more so today. People are very confused. The people of the island of Malta aren't much different than the common person around Fredericksburg. They're confused about Jesus Christ. They, they may even hold in this town to Jesus Christ. But they're confused about what, what did he actually do and who was he exactly and what does he actually require. And they're confused about the Bible. Is it all true? Are there some mistakes? Is it a good book is it the book? They're confused about where to look for and find church. It's in my deer stand. It's in my pasture. It's in my small group. It's in my building. It's in my 
These are religious people. It's the world around us that is confused about truth. And God calls us as those who he has given the light of Jesus Christ and the recognition of what truth is and where to find it to be ministers to them. And it can be very simple. It can be somebody saying, I just feel, I just feel lost right now. I don't know what to do. And by God's grace, we can have the boldness to say, have you, have you ever heard about one who, who came to help the lost? Maybe you don't quote it verbatim, but it's Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Or they say something to the effect of, I'm just so tired. I'm tired of all this. And we have the opportunity by God's grace to say, have you ever, have you ever heard about the one who said he came to be strength for the weak and heavy laden in Matthew chapter 10. The world is confused about the truth and he has given us the truth and he has called us to be those who speak the truth to those, about, to those around us who desperately need it. Now, the fourth one I want you to see here is that we judge on the outside. We judge on the outside. God judges on the inside. We judge on the outside. This does have some play with the second one I said, which is public opinion is fickle. But I, I, I want us to note that the way these people are judging Paul, they're judging by way of what is taking place in his life. Okay, he's got a viper on his hand. Therefore, he must have done something wrong. <clears throat> And since it didn't go well for him, therefore he is wrong. But on the flip side, then we would say, okay, well, he shook the viper off. Therefore, maybe he's doing something right. We do this all the time. We look at somebody in their life and we say, okay, it seems to be going well. They must have done something right. What did they do right? Or we look at their life and say, well, they got into a car accident. They got an unexpected bill. Something happened bad in their life. They must have done something bad. We're not immune to this. It happens. We think about these things. It's interesting to observe here in this text and in the world around us how the world views bad things that happen to folks. And almost without fail, it's that something isn't right. Therefore, they didn't do something right. That's the cause. And therefore, the root or the fruit of that is something happens wrong. And people assign all sorts of blame to things. They would assign the blame to bad karma or to Mother Earth or to negative thinking or to whatever nonsense they have. But they do acknowledge that a higher power doesn't seem to be pleased with that individual to whom things are not going well. The Christian, on the other hand, notice what Paul does here by way of illustration recognizes that what may be perceived as bad, which, by the way, a viper latching on your hand, that's bad, right? We don't wake up every morning and think, yeah, this is a good thing. Vipers latching onto our hands. No, he knows it's bad. But Paul knows, Paul is convinced that nothing, including this viper, is outside the control and design of God's plan. And like Job, the bad may be a gracious test of faith rather than a punishment. 
If, if you didn't know Jesus Christ and you didn't know the sovereign power of God and you're looking at Paul in chapter 27, you've got to be thinking, what'd you do wrong, bro? Ending up on a ship for 14 days in the middle of a storm. The Christian recognizes, no, God is sovereignly at work. And we don't equate that which we perceive as bad in someone's life as punishment. But we first should recognize that God may be disciplining in love or he may be leading or he may be preparing for something bigger by way of fiery trial. And that's certainly what he's doing with Paul. Job's friends, they do it all, they, they, they do, they did what we do all the time. Ah, Job, we knew you had that hidden sin. It's obviously evident. Just confess it. Just tell us what you did wrong. But we know how that works. Why do we recognize? Why should Christians know? Why should we be reminded? That when bad things happen, and I say that in air quotes, if you will, recognizing that God is control, in control of these things. Why do we equate when bad things happen? We're not saying that all bad things are good things, but we, when we recognize that God is sovereignly behind even the bad things, why, why can we say that? And it's because of Jesus Christ. We know this. When Jesus Christ was sent, he atoned for all of our sins. He took the wrath of God upon himself so that the entirety of God's love would fall upon us, his children. We sang this last week. Those he saves are his delight. He will hold me fast. And so the gospel informs us how to even think in the difficult times of our lives that whatever ill may be happening, it is from the hand of our loving and caring Heavenly Father. It's not by way of accident. No demon power or sinful man, we sang this morning. So why is it that we look out into the world and see a bunch of religious-minded people who seem to be having a whole lot less trouble than we are at any given moment and we think, what are they doing that I'm not and therefore they're in better places than I am? And I don't know why we do that. I do, but I don't like to think about it. But I do know that Christ warns us in Matthew 6 about folks who practice their religion for the appeal of men and they get their reward now. And what they might be getting by way of looking good is the reward. Approval, honor, a pat on the back, maybe even money, promotions. And just in case you've forgotten, that was number four. We're on number five now. The, unkindness of unsafe, the, the kindness of unsafe folks Public opinion is fickle, confused about the truth. We judge on the outside. Last one, and we'll move through this quickly, and then to 7 through 10. Fear, uh, excuse me, faith versus fear. Faith versus fear. Notice the faith of Paul. Verse 5. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Paul's faith is quiet. Now, that doesn't mean Paul is not fearful. That doesn't mean Paul is not Afraid. That doesn't mean that when a prosperity gospel says just, just have faith and shake off your troubles in faith into the fire. No, that's not true. Faith doesn't shake off every fear, but it does give us the grace to work through our fears. There's not 
just faith in Paul and not fear. There's fear in Paul as well. Paul is just a man. Viper bites hurt. But notice his faith. Notice his faith. It's the grace of God to give us faith to overcome our fears and transfer our earthly fears to a proper fear of God. But what Paul also does here, just by way of his shaking this thing off, is a testament to Paul's willingness to die wherever and whenever as long as he dies with his boots on. I, I, Paul's just submitted to wherever God wants him to be. And if that's the island of Malta and that's where he's going down, he's going to go down there. But he's going to go down serving God. Now, let, before we move into this next session, section, let's just simply say this about this viper and snake. What is it all about? And I think it's pretty clear. God is doing what he's done in the earlier part of the book of Acts. He's doing what he did with his son Christ as it regards miracles. God is marking Paul in the eyes of a new group of people as God's man, as his man. Here's Paul and the sailors and the soldiers know him as God's man and now these barbarians know that he is God's man as well. He's giving him, if you will, an authoritative voice. We've seen this across the board. It's happening here as well, and we see it take place, our play out, if you will, in verses 7 through 10. Let's look there, a healing and a help. Now, somewhere in this neighborhood, this is not a big island. I'll give you the specs here in a moment, but it's not a large island. Somewhere in this neighborhood is this gentleman. He was a chief man of the island, and he doesn't have a barbaric name. He has a Roman name. So there's some indication here he probably wasn't born on the island of Malta as much as he may have moved there, possibly from Rome. But he's there and he takes in Paul and maybe it's everybody, all 276. Maybe it's just the centurion and Paul and his companions. We're not sure, but he's hospitable to them for three days. And Paul gets word that his father is sick. And so Paul visits him, and Paul prays for him, and God heals him. The prayer of Paul in verse 8 is the, is the testifying of Paul to the power of, of God's ability to heal. It's the testimony of Paul simply saying that God has the, the power to heal by his grace. And this man is healed, and what takes place is exactly verse 9 like what takes place in the ministry of Christ. Christ would go to a new place. Christ would encounter a specific pain in life, in somebody's life. He would act upon it as only Christ could in all his creative power. And then what happens? Large crowds would come to that place and they would all seek out the opportunity to get healed. We find this in Luke chapter 4, verse 38 through 40. Christ is in Simon's house and Simon's mother-in-law is ill with a high fever and they appeal to Christ on her behalf verse 39 as he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her and immediately she arose and began to serve them now when the sun was setting all those who had 
any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. It's taking place on the island of Malta as well. God's doing the work through Paul. And you really can't blame these folks on the island. Uh, you're living on an island, literally. You're living on an island. You, you've got family members or yourself who are, who are sick and you hear from across the way that somebody has gotten healed and so you make the trek. The island is 17 miles long, nine miles wide. You can do that quite easily back in that day. I can make that journey. I would desire to be healed. But as I stated at the beginning, I want you to notice what is lacking in verse 10. Look at it. Look at verse 10. They also, they also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we, were needed, whatever we needed. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 9? This is a ways back to your left, but Acts chapter 9. I want us to just note by way of comparison what takes place in Acts 9 that doesn't take place in 28. Acts chapter 9. Look at verse 36. Here's a healing done by Peter or through Peter. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died and when they had washed her they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa the disciples hearing that Peter was there sent two men to him urging, her, urging him please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the window, widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And he opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a Tanner. Notice verse 42. That's the point of contrast I want you to see. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. We don't have that testimony in verse 10. Why? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Many believed in the Lord, verse 42 of Acts 9. We don't get anything in verse 10. So were many saved on Joppa and Luke didn't tell us about it? It doesn't say. And apparently it isn't for us to know. Which in some ways is good. Because we're prone to, to cause and affect thinking to many times in our lives. And that doesn't work too well in the Christian faith. If I tell three people a week about Jesus, then I can expect that this result will take place. Maybe, I hope not, but it would be funny. Somebody took this literally and said, if I built up an immunity to rattlesnakes and I shoved my hand in and I could yank these things out and... then much, many people will get saved, right? Except it doesn't work like that. And it doesn't say that. The point seems to be clear that it's not about the result of what takes place on the island of Malta. It's about who is on the island of Malta and his faithfulness. That is Paul. 
Paul was just being as faithful on an island with non-Greek-speaking people as he could be. And when he left, he would continue to be faithful on his way to Rome. And so therefore, there's the application for us, which is to simply be faithful in common places. We should make soup for the sick person. We should follow the leading of the Holy Spirit about that coworker whom you know has a heavy heart. And we do all of it knowing that God is the one who reaps the harvest. God is the one who gets the glory. God is the one who bears out fruit. Knowing that those we minister to might be very grateful and kind and sweet and never turn in repentance in saving faith to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that's not why we do it in the beginning either. Anyway, we do it for the, for the, to the obedience of God, for his glory, seeking to be faithful. And God does the work. And it's up to him. Which gives us, should give us a lot of confidence to be faithful when maybe we don't want to be. Now I have just a few, I have two passages to take us to and then one illustration or two and we're done. And so here's, one I, here's where I want you to go. I want you to go in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. Would you go there? Philippians chapter 2. Stick your finger there. Stick your bullets in there. Whatever you need to do. Hold your finger there. Go to Mark chapter 8. And then once you have those two places, we'll look at both of them together. But I want to begin by, by close, by I want, I want to, begin closing out our time with, with, with simply this question. Statement and a question. Paul wanted Rome for Christ. Paul wanted Rome for Christ and nothing else. What about you? Can you say you want your neighborhood for Christ and nothing else? Can you say you want your offers workers for Christ and nothing else? Can you say you want your gym for Christ and nothing else? Your homeschool group, your mops group, whatever, whatever it is. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2 and then we'll, we'll consider that question. This is the example of us, set for us, of Jesus Christ. And his single-minded focus for what God called him to do. Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 8. You know this passage. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Notice that. Same mind. Same love. Being in full accord. One mind. Single-mindedness here. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, that's Jesus Christ. Mark 8, 34 through 38. Look what he calls us to do in obedience and of unified mind with him. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. 
Okay, we can do that safely, right? Forever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I'll leave it there. That's the call. That's the focus Paul has. Illustration. Charles Haddon Spurgeon dies at the age of 57 after 24 years of poor health. I give up after a day or two. 24 years, poor health. Preaching weekly up to 13 times. He oversees ministries. He helps plant 187 churches. He said before he died, This, when you see my coffin carried to the silent grave, I should like every one of you, whether converted or not, to be constrained to say, He did earnestly urge us in plain and simple language not to put off the consideration of eternal things. He didn't treat us He did entreat us to look to Christ. Now that he is gone, our blood is not at his door if we perish. The Bible on Spurgeon's coffin was laid open to Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. When we look at guys like, or folks like Spurgeon, or Judson to Burma, Carson to Canada, Borden to Yale, Rita Cuffey to Bloomington, Indiana, David Green in New Braunfels, Texas. And you don't know some of those people. I picked them purposefully. You'll never hear of them. You won't read books on them. They're just doing their thing. The point is not to drop it all and go to the mission field or go to language school so that you can go to China or wherever else. The point is simply that God calls us, wherever we are, to be faithful to Him, to preach Christ. So we should want to be better neighbors. We should want to be better co-workers. We should want, us to be, we should want each other to be better grocery shoppers. You get what I mean when I say that? That every one of us Me first, have the ability to live by the grace of God more obediently for Him and His glory and the simplest things of life. We're not talking about foreign missions and seminary here. We're talking about simple things. And I think sometimes, I I know it was for me at a much younger age, which was, was this, not that much younger, younger age, was this idea that somehow I had to go there to do it, to be that faithful person for Christ. And I really think, for me, that was a desire birthed from a romanticism given by the Western church on international missions more than an actual calling. But that's an aside. The point is this. Faithful, all the way to the end, hard running for Jesus Christ. Second illustration. I've done a lot of running. The hardest 5K I ever ran, I didn't get a personal time because it was a relay of a triathlon. 
And I knew I had given everything because it's the only time I've ever run where I was pushing so hard with 200 yards to go, everything turned sepia. I mean, that's, my vision's going brown. I'm blacking out. And I watched the periphery of my vision do this. Ooh, coming in. And I didn't care at that point what the, what, what, what the time was. Because the time didn't matter at that point. I had given every ounce of what I had to get to that finish line. At that point, it didn't matter. I was satisfied with the knowledge that I had gone to the very limits of what I could do. My best had been given. A life of faith lived entirely for Christ is simply a simple life devoted to his kingdom. Probably less outside your home and more inside your home than you would think. Probably more private prayer than public prayer. If you're a third grader, do your best for Christ. If you're a mom with lots of littles, do your best for Christ. If you're a single man, live your best for Jesus Christ. Why? Because he loves you. He gave his life for you. By his example, we recognize life is really being lived when all is being given for God's glory. So what do you do? You should go home. You should get down on your knees somewhere by yourself and ask God to help you. And ask him to give you a willingness to speak to whomever and whenever about Christ. And for some here, that's going to be a nudge in the continued right direction. Because you're already doing that. You're already wanting to live that way. And it's just to help along the way. But for some of you, I know for some of you, it's going to be an entirely different shift. It's going to be an entirely shift in your life. And so be careful with that prayer because he will very much answer that. And he will upend you like nobody's business. He will reveal hidden sin that you don't want to have become visible, but he knows you have to have it in order to keep you humble. He may well take you on a road of fire. Before he gives you a fire for him, he may take you through a fiery trial to get you where you need to be. But I can't offer you anything else other than to say what we have is by way of example in our text this morning. Is the Apostle Paul and what living as a Christian looks like? He's just on a beach, right? Not preaching to 5,000 people here. He's just praying, being faithful with the people in front of him. That's all God calls you to do. That's all he asks you to do. If he's asking you to go to China, we'll send you there. But I don't know of anybody in here that he's asking you to go to China. But I do know he's asking us to be better Grocery shoppers and runners and moms and dads who know where we have places that we're just not giving it the way we should for Christ and we need to move in that direction. And let's do it for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time. We thank you for our text. We thank you for the, the way your word shocks us at times 
it seems to be that the, the simplest things in your word often do the most for me. I'm moved by this text, Father. Pray, Father, that you would, that it would be a nudge, that we would all be living in a way that it, would, it could be a nudge of encouragement and, and moving forward in the way we're currently living. And yet, Father, we would also, I would also pray for this church, for every believer here, that if there are some here that, that have just gone cold, they've grown lazy in their walk with you, Father, up in them, out of love for us. Do it for me, if that's me. Father, we want to be used by you. We want to see souls come into your kingdom. We want to see the gospel reach our local community. But more so, Father, we want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We want to know that by your grace, by the power of your spirit, we did our best. We're grateful for the perfection of Christ. Our best would never be good enough to win your approval, but through Christ you find glory in our best, of which you reward us, and we will simply use those rewards to cast back at your feet in humble worship for all of eternity. Father, use us in our simple faith and faithfulness to grow that number that would cast those rewards back at your feet for your glory. We thank you for the opportunity this morning that we've had to study your word, to pray, and as we sing and receive a blessing from your word, help us this week. In Christ's name, amen.